Revelation chapter 12. It's been a, seems like forever since we were in the book of Revelation. So we're taking up our study again tonight in the 12th chapter, which is the beginning of the second half of the book. This is, of course, called the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is a particularly important place where we start tonight because if you look at the interpretation of these verses correctly, you'll see that the second half of the book of Revelation begins in the same way that the first began. Now, we started with the Greek word apocalypsis in Revelation chapter 1, verse number 1. It reads this way, The revelation, that's the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto the servant John. The apocalypsis is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Now, it covers these great mysteries of the kingship of Christ and his lordship overall. And you may think that that's really not such a great mystery, that we know that. We've heard these things before. Uh, That's true, but in a sense, there's no place else in the Scriptures where you find the plan of God so completely exposed for us and rolled out so fully for the recovery of the world and the curse of sin, as we see it here in the book of Revelation. The cosmic character of Jesus Christ as the ruler of the entire universe is brought out in other portions of Scripture. The Apostle Paul speaks of it in such places as Philippians chapter 2. He wrote about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And then also again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The Apostle Peter speaks of it in 2 Peter And Jude also alludes to it very briefly in the short little book that we have that just precedes Revelation. And then if you go back in the Old Testament, you'll find that the second coming of Christ, the second advent of Christ, is spoken probably as much as the first advent of Christ. But all of these other instances would really be mystifying to us if we didn't have the book of Revelation to sort of sort all of that out and tell us what it's all about. Revelation unveils Christ in a magnificently uncommon way. But there are many people who stay away from this book because they're just overwhelmed with all of the imagery that you find in it. And I think the problem that we have with so many people that are afraid to wander in the book of Revelation, the trepidation, I think, comes from... So many preachers and so many churches that have twisted and put so many different interpretations on the book that pe- people just go away, what are, go away, what are we to believe about it? I mean, what's the truth of this? There's so many schemes to trying to interpret Revelation. And then you add on top of that that there are books that are written that fictionalize the Revelation. And I've told you before, it's never a good idea to fictionalize any part of the Bible. And so I I would warn you to stay away from things like the Left Behind series and all of that because all that does is just confuse you about things that are really in the Word of God and it does more harm than it does good. So we come to this 12th chapter, which is the midpoint of the book, and you might not as easily recognize that this book begins or the second half begins as the first part does, that it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. Things aren't spelled out exactly in the same way as they are in the first part of the book. But the first two verses that we're going to read in this scripture tonight are keys to the interpretation of the book of Revelation. Now it is, of course, I said, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And how you interpret the first two verses that we're going to read tonight tells you what kind of revelation that you have. 
So the first two verses are key to the eternal purposes of God that stretch all the way back to the very beginning, to Genesis chapter 3.15, to the Proto-Evangelium, the very first preaching of the gospel. And so we're going to begin tonight by reading the first six verses in Revelation chapter 12. And we're not actually going to be able to talk about all of that tonight. But we're looking into the subject, the battered woman. Now we'll actually back up just a little bit and start in chapter 11, verse number 19, because these ideas tie together. If you know that there were no chapter divisions in the Bible uh, when it was originally written, and so people later added the chapter divisions, and this is one of those places where they would have been better starting chapter 12 with actually the 19th verse in chapter 11. So that's where we're going to start reading. If you'd stand with me, please, as we look at God's Word. Look at uh, uh, Revelation 11, verse number 19. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head was a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for your reading of the word tonight. And we just pray, Lord, that you'd open our hearts to this portion of Scripture. Help us to understand a little bit better uh, the wondrous things that you have done. Help us to get a grasp of what the Scripture is saying to us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven. I have to start with an explanation of that phrase because that helps us to understand... When the Bible is speaking in symbolic terms and when it's speaking literally. And that is a problem for many people when they read Revelation because people will ask things like, uh, is a mountain really a mountain? Is the sea really a sea? Is a horse really a horse? Is a locust really a locust? Is Babylon really a city? And those two witnesses that we read about in chapter 11, are those really two men and what's that all about? We take a literal view of Revelation, and so that means that you should read Revelation just like you do the rest of the Word of God. And that is that you are to take a literal interpretation of it. The Bible is to be interpreted literally in its natural reading, and whenever there's symbolic language that is used, the text will usually tell us that that's what it is. And that's what we have here. The text says, there appeared a wonder in heaven. Wonder is the same word from which we get sign. And so this is telling us that there is a great sign that appeared in heaven. That means that it's a symbol. And what follows here in the symbol is representative of something else. Now, for example, when I uh, drive home from church in the afternoons and 
I'm driving down Stony Point Road, I pass a sign there that it says, City of Santa Rosa. Well, that doesn't mean that this whole city of Santa Rosa, the huge city of Santa Rosa, is there contained in that sign. That sign is a symbol of something. It tells us that that's the boundary of the city. And when you reach that place, that you're entering into the city of Santa Rosa. So the sign is given just to symbolize something, that that's the boundary. It's not the real thing. And so what we have here, as we see this in Revelation chapter 12, this is a symbol, and the Bible is telling us that there is a symbol here of something else. And because we're so clearly told in this particular place, this is a sign that helps us to understand a little bit better why that we need to take other parts of Revelation and interpret those things literally. Now further, the Word of God says here that it is a great wonder or it is a great sign, meaning that this is something that's very important. This is superlative. This is something that we have to look at very carefully because here is something that has great meaning. So what is the sign? Well, the verse says, A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. So... It's a sign. It's the sign of a woman. Now, that tells us that we're not speaking here of a literal woman. It's not some huge woman that's big enough to have a, a crown like this and to have the sun and the moon under her feet or to wear a crown of stars. Now, it's obvious that the Word of God is speaking here of a symbol of something else. Well, we get that far, and we understand that piece of it, but that's where all the confusion starts. Because who is the woman. It's a symbol of a woman, but who is this woman? And how you interpret who the woman is is key uh, to Bible prophecy. You get this particular place wrong, and you're going to be skewed in the book of Revelation. And so you're going to be wondering, you're going to be in darkness, because the rest of it makes very little sense if we don't understand who this is. And that's a problem that many people have. They get the woman here in uh, Revelation chapter 12 wrong, and so they end up with wrong interpretations of the book. So this is what we want to look at first tonight in this part of the message, and that is the identity of the woman. Just who is this woman? And that's a key question. We've come across one other woman in the book of Revelation so far. If you remember, this was back in Revelation chapter 2. And there was a woman there who was called Jezebel. And that was an allusion, of course, back to the Old Testament story of King Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel. And she was a woman who was the nemesis of Elijah. And she was the one who got Israel started off on a path of worshiping false gods. So there was a woman back in chapter 2 who was in the city of Thyatira. And she displayed characteristics of Jezebel. She was a woman that had taken charge in the church. And so she was a woman who called herself a preacher. Now, if that stands for anybody, if I were to pick somebody else, that, that uh, somebody that might stand for, maybe Joyce Meyer, maybe Gloria Copeland or somebody like that. But in any case, it's certainly a picture of what's gone wrong in churches who have taken women and elevated them to places where they take charge, where they stand in the pulpits and they preach Uh, from pulpits just like the men preach. And that is not a place for a woman. Now, it's interesting that there have been women down through history who have claimed actually to be this woman. Uh, J. Vernon McGee, for instance, mentions a woman by the name of Joanna Southcott who, in 1814, said that she was the one who was going to give birth to this man-child. Well, she never had the child, but she did gain 200,000 followers. 
Later on, when we get to chapter 17, we come across another woman there, and she's called the great whore. I don't think anybody wants to identify with her, but that's what she's called. And personally, I think that that is talking about the apostate Roman Catholic Church that in the end times will gather a brood of false religions underneath her arms. Then in chapter 19, we see another woman there. And this is a quite different woman than the other two that we've already talked about because this woman is pristine. This woman is pure. The Bible shows her clothed in clean white linen. And this particular woman is the bride of Jesus Christ. That's his church, the glorious church arrayed in all of her beauty, the church that's been washed clean in the blood of Jesus Christ. But who's the woman in chapter 12? Well, she's very significant because redemptive history is very concerned with this particular woman in various ways. Now, I want to mention to you, first of all tonight, who she is not. There are three main theories, three ideas advanced about who the woman is, and most people are pushed towards the first two, and that's what I'm going to talk about here, and then we'll get to the right interpretation. But the first one is that some people identify her as Mary. But she is not Mary. A a few weeks ago, there was someone who asked me about this, and this person said that I've been told that this woman is Mary. This is the Blessed Virgin Mary who is the mother of God. Now, what religious group do you think would say that? Well, of course, that, that would be Roman Catholicism. One of the things Catholicism does is they look everywhere that they can go for their perversion of Mariolatry, and so they'll try to find Mary in any Bible text that they can. But there is no scripture that gives us any hint that Mary is anything like the Roman Catholic Church describes her. She is not a co-redemptrix with Christ. She was not immaculately conceived. She was not bodily assumed into heaven. And there's not a shred of evidence anywhere in scripture for any of that. And so when Catholicism speaks of Mary in that way. They're simply grasping at straws, trying to find Mary in any biblical text that they can. I guess it was maybe last week. uh, I hadn't uh, intended to mention this in my sermon, but I was doing a little bit of reading this afternoon. And uh, I think it was last week, uh, Brother Max Arlen gave me an article... Uh, I think it came out originally in 2007, but it was something that the, that the Pope said. And, and the Pope was saying that all the Protestant churches and all these other people that are out there that are non-Catholics, that none of them, uh, in essence what he was saying, that none of them are going to heaven because they're not a part of the Holy Roman Catholic Church, which is the Savior, quite frankly, of the world. Now that's pretty much... Uh, Roman Catholic dogma. And it's, you know, it's a kind of a funny thing that as a Baptist, if I were to stand up here and tell you that there's only one way that you can get to heaven and only one way, period, one way, I get vilified for that. But the Pope says the very same thing. He's got the wrong idea, but he says the very same thing and they praise him for what he says. I mean, he says that there's nothing, no one but Roman Catholics, people that are in the Roman Catholic Church. They're the only people that are going to heaven. And they've compiled all of these false things, these false dogmas and everything else that goes along with that. And they have made that their doctrine. And all of that stuff is extra to the Bible. So when the, the Pope, Benedict, is it Benedict the Sixteenth? I think is his name. He doesn't know my name, so I don't need to know his. So <laughs> Pope, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, I think it is. And um, he said that the 
Protestant communities and so forth. They are ecclesiastical communities, but they aren't true churches, and I partially agree with some of that. But uh, our, uh, Albert Moeller, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, and uh, some of you men that went to the MacArthur Conference with us last year, uh, you got, or was it this year, rather, we got to hear uh, Albert Moeller speak. But he said something. I just want to read his comments to you. It says, Weighing in on the controversy, R. Albert Moeller, Jr., the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, made repeated reference to the fact that he was not offended, or not offended by what the Pope said. In remarks made in an article to the Baptist Press, July 13, 2007, Moeller was not reticent to point out that while he appreciated the Pope's concern, he was sure the Pope was not right about the papacy, not right about the sacraments, not right on the priesthood, and not right on the gospel, and not right on the church. So he didn't really care too much about what Pope Benedict XVI said. And I would tell you the very same thing. I care very little for what the Pope says about Mary because he has all the wrong ideas. Now, if you look at verse number 6 in uh, the Scripture here, verse uh, chapter 12, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Now, what we don't find in Scripture, any place in Scripture that tells any kind of a story like that of Mary. In the 14th verse, it says, And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and a half time from the face of the serpent. Now, if that's Mary, what we have here is a real woman mixed up with some kind of a symbol. So it says that she was given two wings of a great eagle. Now that simply makes no sense if we're talking about a literal woman here. And further, we see that she is in the wilderness and nourished for 1260 days. In uh, chapter, or verse number 14, where it says times, times, and a half time. Time equals one year. Times equals two years. And a half time equals a half year. So that's three and a half years, which is... 1260 days, and that corresponds to the last half of the tribulation period. So that's one thing that shows us that we're not speaking about Mary. Then another reason that this can't be Mary is because the Scripture never gives her any kind of a description of an adornment like we find in these verses. She's never exalted in this way. And so if you were going to look at verses 1 and 2 or 1 through 6 as the revelation of the birth of Christ in Bethlehem, then the Roman Catholics teaching that this is Mary are really messed up in their own dogma. They, they cross themselves up. Because all you'd have to do is go to uh, the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem and you go in there to the place that they say is where Christ was born. And you go into the church and you go down into a deep dark hole like a cave in there. That's what it is, a cave. And you see this place where they claim that Jesus was born. Now what we know from scripture about Mary in the birth of Christ was that she was a Galilean virgin. That she was poor. That her husband was a poor carpenter who could not provide anything better for her to have this baby than in a cave or a grotto, someplace like that. Now that is the complete opposite of the picture that we have here in Revelation 12. If it's speaking about the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. Because Mary was not exalted at the birth of Christ. So this is not Mary. And there's nothing here that lends any support that she is to be worshipped 
Or she is, as Roman Catholicism claims, to be the queen of heaven. She is not clothed with the sun. She doesn't have the moon and the earth at her footstool. Those things are reserved for Jesus Christ. Now, secondly, she's not Mary. And secondly, she is not the church. And that's another widely held opinion. And there are some otherwise very good Bible expositors who believe that this is speaking about the church. Uh, J.A. Sice, uh, I don't know if any of you know who he is, but he was a dispensationalist from the 19th century and a very good Bible expositor. And he's one who believes that this is actually speaking of the church. Well, it tells us here, or I think we see the picture, you're probably getting this already, that the birth of the child is, is speaking about Christ, that or it's speaking about the Messiah. And so if this is the church, then it would mean that the church gives birth to Christ. Now, if that's true, we're running backwards here somewhere because the church did not give birth to Christ. Christ gave birth to the church. And the scriptures never call the church any kind of a mother. It says that she is a bride. She is a chaste virgin who's espoused to Christ. There are some in covenant theology who call this the church because they believe that you can find the church in the Old Testament. And they say that... Uh, the church in the New Testament times is just a continuation of Israel, and it's really on a different level. But that can't be true because the church is a New Testament entity. It didn't exist before Christ. So this is not in any sense a continuation of Israel. And in fact, that's where Protestant denominations get the idea of infant baptism because they think that the baptism replaces the circumcision of the Old Testament. It's also where you get the idea of a community, covenant community of believers. Now, those of you that uh, have been reading Table Talk, which is something that I recommend, and we talk about that in Sunday school class a lot, but uh, unfortunately, in some senses, that was written by Protestant people, and uh, they have the idea of a covenant community. And a covenant community, what that actually means is a mixture of believers and unbelievers that are in the church. That's what they call the visible church. Well, that gives rise to the necessity of another idea, which is the universal invisible church, which includes only those people that are actually saved. Well, there's no meaning like that in the word church. The, the Greek word church does not contain any meaning such as that. So we're not talking about the church here. And then verses 16, 6 and 14 also show us that it can't be the church because the church has already been taken out of the world. We've already discussed that back when we finished up chapter 3. We don't find the church mentioned in the book of Revelation until you get over to chapter 22. And there you're speaking about uh, looking back on things that we've already talked about. And so the church is not in view here. The church is raptured. It's already gone out of the world. And this is very clearly talking about the time of tribulation. So therefore we know it's not the church. So who is it? Who is this speaking of? I think some of you probably have already put it together and you recognize who this is. She is the nation of Israel. She is national Israel. Now, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 9 for just a moment. And we're going to read here what Paul says about Israel. Romans 9 is a marvelous text about God's election of his people. And it starts out with a description of Christ's relationship to the nation of Israel. Romans chapter 9... And verse number 1 says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. 
For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, who are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God bless forever, amen. Israel is the nation that gave birth to Christ. Now, these were God's chosen people. They were blessed above all the other nations of the world. All nations are blessed through them because through Israel, we're given the Christ. We're given the one who is the Savior of this world, the Messiah of the entire world. And if you look at the history of Israel, you find that every woman in Israel lived with the hope that she would be the one who would give birth to the Messiah. Now, I hate to say it in this way, but, but female babies were a very big disappointment to mothers because they were hoping that they would give birth to the Messiah. And then if there was a mother who was barren, she was very distraught about that because that meant that she missed her opportunity to give birth to the Christ. So the identity of this woman is integral to the right interpretation of Revelation. This causes us to take a whole different view of the events because it helps us to understand that God still has a covenant with Israel, that God still has something that he's going to do with Israel. There are multiple promises that are made in the Old Testament that Israel would be established in a glorious kingdom. And if this is Israel, if we interpret it this way, then we have a basis for the overall literal interpretation of the book of Revelation. So this is a literal kingdom. Well, as yet, we know that the promise hasn't been fulfilled. And if you look at such prophecies in in Isaiah chapter 9, you'll find that that's true. Now, in Isaiah chapter 9, that's that's one of the texts that we pull out at Christmas time. And we read that particular text because we talk about the birth of Jesus, the coming of Christ in the world, and we speak of that as Christ who's going to be a king to reign over us. And when I say us, I mean you and me. But Isaiah chapter 9 is not primarily talking about us. It's speaking about Israel. Here's how the verse reads. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. That's Isaiah speaking, and he says, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That is speaking of Israel. Now, when Christ came, we know that he did not become the king of Israel at that time. He wasn't the king because the Jews rejected him. But the rejection of the Jews of Christ is only a temporary rejection because there is still this promise that Christ is going to come back and he's going to rule in a physical kingdom. Micah chapter 4 is one of the many Old Testament prophecies that speak of this. I want to read it to you right quickly. God was speaking through Micah and he says, In that day, saith the Lord, will I assemble her that halteth, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted, speaking of Israel. And I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast far off a strong nation. And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why dost thou cry aloud? Is there no king in thee? 
Is thy counselor perished? For pangs have taken thee as a woman in travail. Now think about that in connection with what we've just read in those first two verses in Revelation. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shalt thou go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the field, and thou shalt go even to Babylon. There shalt thou be delivered. There the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. Now that's not just an Old Testament idea. It carries through into the New Testament, and the Apostle Paul speaks of this. Now, Jesus spoke of it as well, but I want you to listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 11. He was well aware at his time, of course, that the Jews had rejected Christ because he spent all of his time trying to uh, convert Jews before God sent him to the Gentiles. And likewise, the apostles were always preaching to the Jews because of their rejection of Christ. But listen to what he says is coming in the future. Romans 11, verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. That blindness, in part, is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes." Now, what Paul is telling us there is that God still has this covenant with Israel. And friends, there's one thing that we know about God. He is a covenant-keeping God. He never stops short of any promise that he makes. And this promise is still hanging out there and still yet to be fulfilled. And so, in the great uh, tribulation time, there will be a turning of the Jews to Jesus Christ. We've already discussed how 144,000 Jews will be called out of the 12 tribes of Israel, 12,000 from each tribe, and they will be special witnesses of the gospel of Christ. And through their witness, they'll turn many of their fellows to Jesus. Now, those 144,000 are going to be martyred before the end of the tribulation. Those that are saved because of their witness, many of them will also be martyred. But there will be people, Jewish people, that are going to go into this millennial kingdom that Christ is going to set up on the earth. There is a literal kingdom that is coming, and Christ is going to rule in that kingdom from Mount Zion. He'll rule from Jerusalem in a real kingdom. Now, that brings up another important point concerning the identity of the woman. Fourthly, she is the tribes of Israel. Now, of course, the nation of Israel is the tribes of Israel. But I want to point that out specifically because of this description that we have in verse number 1. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. Now there, the description nails down the identity of the woman. Because we've seen before in Revelation that the text here has Old Testament overtones written all over it. That's why I started reading with verse number 19 in chapter 11. And that's because of the connection of the Old Testament. Now we have something like this in the Old Testament that ties all of this together. And here is one of those places where we see the New Testament and the Old Testament blend together to give us a proper or further explanation. Now when do we have something like this in the Old Testament? It was when Joseph had his dream. When Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt, just before he went, he had a dream. 
Now, we find that in the book of Genesis. So I'd like you to turn, if you would, to uh, Genesis chapter 37. And if you think about this history, how far it goes back, who would, who would even imagine that what we read there in the book of Genesis would play out all the way to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation? Little could Joseph know that the dream that he had had these kinds of connections with it. Now, Joseph was sold into slavery. He was sold to a heathen king in a heathen country. But the dream that he dreamed had eternal consequences to it. Now, listen to uh, verse number 5. We'll start there in Genesis chapter 37. And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it to his brethren. And they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, Hear, I pray you, this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheep arose and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheep. And his brethren said to him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And he dreamed yet another dream and told it his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come down or come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? And his brethren envied him. But his father observed the saying. Now we know that the immediate context of Joseph's dream is that what would happen a little bit later in Genesis. And that was when Joseph was, was sold into slavery, that eventually Joseph would be lifted up and he would become second in command to all of, all of the nation of Egypt. And the end of the story, his brothers did come, and without knowing who he was, they bowed down before him. Now, Joseph became a savior in the famine that engulfed the world at that time. Now, not only Egypt was suffering with the famine, but all the rest of the world or the immediate vicinity was suffering through a famine also. And so that meant that Jacob and his sons, they were also involved in that famine. And so what Joseph became then was the savior of Israel. He saved them from the famine when he became second in command in Egypt. Now, Joseph in that is typical of Christ. And how much more can we see it borne out by this dream that he had and the connection that we have here in Revelation? Joseph's father was Jacob, and Jacob was the uh, father of the 12 tribes of Israel. So these were people... They're the nation from which the Messiah would come. And in fact, you remember when Jacob died, that he pronounced a blessing on all of his sons. And particularly, he made a promise to his son Judah. In Genesis 49, verse 10, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Shiloh there is the Lord Jesus Christ. The kings of Israel came through Judah, and Jesus is Shiloh, and he came from Judah. Hebrews tells us, and Hebrews is the definitive New Testament book on Old Testament types, but it says, for it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah. So what we have here then is just an astounding, marvelous picture in this symbol. The scriptures are just beautifully woven together to give us this picture of Christ, this glorious pictures. So the woman is Israel, 
And God is going to exalt her at the end of the tribulation. Uh, Christ will set up his kingdom. There will be a reign of Jesus Christ for 1,000 years. He'll rule with a rod of iron. And he promised that that kingdom is coming to Israel. Now, do you see how important it is that we get the identity right? If we're speaking here of Mary, none of that makes sense. It doesn't fit together. If we're talking about the church, it doesn't work. It doesn't fit with this. And so it has to be Israel. And any other kind of uh, explanation for it simply confuses us. And it leaves us going through the rest of what's happening here with endless conjecture trying to figure it all out. Now, next week, we're coming back to this. And here is where we'll see the woman actually travailing, travailing in order to give birth to this child. We'll see trouble in Israel. We'll see what happened to them all throughout the history of Israel, what Satan tried to bring against Israel to prevent the birth of Jesus Christ. But she brought forth the man-child, and he was the one who was the Savior of the world, the King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Next week, I think you'll understand a little bit better why I called her the battered woman. It was very difficult to bring Jesus into the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we've had to spend in your word as we study this. And Lord, the Bible is just an amazing book. If we take the time to study and look at all the pictures that we find here and see how the Bible perfectly fits together, then we always have a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ from cover to cover. Genesis to Revelation, it's a book about Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for what we've learned from your word tonight. And we thank you for Jesus Christ in whose precious name we pray. Amen.